Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of Billy West Live. Uh, again, it's just great to welcome Dr. Greg Granger from Northwestern State University uh, to our show. And, and Greg, so many things are happening in, in the world of geopolitics and, uh, and really just uh, what's happening in Ukraine is on the front burner of everybody. But North Korea uh, just recently launched an ICBM. I, I'd like your comments and thoughts about North Korea uh, Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump's best mm-hmm. friend. And what do we do about that? Okay, well, thank you, Billy. It's good to be here with you all the time, um, as usual. And, of course, this is concerning. I mean, on the one hand, it is in the pattern of what North Korea has been doing for about 25 or so years now, nearly 30 years. Uh, at the other hand, it is very concerning because it does show studies are still being done on this, but it does seem to show, you know, continuing improvements in their development um, of long-range missiles that can carry nuclear weapons. And perhaps even uh, the goal that they're going for is what we call MIRVs, and that is a warhead that can contain more than one uh, nuclear warhead and can deliver them independently. And they're not there yet, but that's part of what they're working on. Um, it, it has to do with the type of fuel that they're testing. It has to do with the weight and size of their warheads. And uh, this one, we think, went up about 6,000 kilometers. What they're doing is shooting these things straight up, basically, because they don't want an overflight over Japan or, or anyone else. Um, so what they do is they calculate how far this missile would go if it was not shot straight up, but, you know, into space and then down again, let's say, towards Hawaii, for example, or towards the, the West Coast. And it does show, again, increasing sophistication uh, and that they're still working on this. And there's still, of course, uh, any any sort of dialogue or, or diplomacy with them uh, has simply not gone anywhere. And uh, so that it just shows, you know, yeah, you're right. Um, Ukraine, of course, is is at the top of our list of what we're paying attention to, but there are other things going on as well. Um, there's fighting that's heating up in Syria and Iraq, and there's um, you know, the situation with North Korea as well. Well, the world is hot right now. I mean, it's hotter than it's been probably in maybe 20 years, uh, going, going back to Serbia, Bosnia, and the Syrian issues in Afghanistan. But it, it's a hot world right now, Greg, and these are things you study all the time, and especially Eastern European politics is something I know you've concentrated on for years. Notwithstanding the North Korean ICBM that might be able to reach, reach the West Coast of the United States, that's very troubling. But the Russian conflict and invasion of Ukraine, you know, is it interesting, Greg, your thoughts about maybe the lack of planning of, of Putin and the Russians? Uh, and then what do you expect to see from them now that their military seems to be bogged down and at, a, at, at best a stalemate with the Ukrainians right now? Uh, dust is still made and possibly even, I mean, we're looking at some serious reverses, uh, including just in the last 24 hours. Uh, there are reports that uh, Ukrainian volunteers were able to halt a 700-vehicle convoy. Uh, a 78-year-old man hit a rocket launcher with a Molotov cocktail. Uh, there are just some incredible stories coming out of Ukraine. And yes, what's really baffling is any sense of coordination. There's not an air ground game. There's not a, a, an air-land war going on. In other words, the, the tanks and the, uh, the artillery that they're using don't have air cover. They still have not dominated the Ukrainian skies in any sense of the word. They're shooting their artillery, some of it, from uh, Russian territory and from Belarus. So 
uh, conventional warfare, you know, this World War II type of war that uh, Putin apparently thought he was he was going to initiate and finish quickly, uh, is turning much like World War II into a bloodbath and a quagmire uh, for the Russian troops. And this leaves Putin with only a couple of options. I mean, we would love to say stopping the war would be one of them, um, but it does not appear he's headed in that direction. He appears to be increasingly desperate, increasingly lonely. He's losing generals. Uh, he's losing, you know, support of uh, people in his government. Perhaps we're, we're thinking this is going on, and so he's getting increasingly desperate, which means uh, he can simply continue to basically flatten Ukrainian cities uh, with bombs, with missiles, with artillery, and uh, people you know, creating more refugees, creating more internally displaced people, and more than anything else, just destroying all sense of infrastructure. What does that leave him with? You know, I think just common sense. It doesn't leave him with much of anything, but he's just, he, he appears destined to think that if he hammers away at, at all of these civilian uh, targets, including refugees and humanitarian aid organizations, that somehow that's going to change the Ukrainians' mind, that they're going to just somehow surrender all of a sudden. Yes. And the other is mm-hmm. question, of course, the big question is, will he get desperate enough to start an alternative event, something involving chemical weapons or the bombing of a chemical plant, for example? Will he perhaps do uh, what, what Russia has in their on their shelves, so, you know, some ideas that they have, some plans that they have in the military, uh, setting off what's called a demonstration effect bomb, setting off a, a nuclear weapon somewhere, not directly in the battlefield, uh, but maybe in the ocean or, or anywhere they are in, in the desert, just to demonstrate they're willing to do so. Uh, there's a potential, there are forest fires going on in, in the Chernobyl region right now, so he you know, could try a more radiological, not necessarily a developed nuclear bomb, but a radiological event that he can contribute to by, you know, again, attacking a, a nuclear plant. So right now, you know, I imagine within the White House, uh, the National Security Council, uh, there are some serious contingency plannings going on, what we call consequence management in case something like this happens. How do we deal with literally the fallout and also the social consequences plus the military consequences? What do we do about it? So there's, you know, an increasing menu of, because there's an increasing menu of uh, tactics that Putin can choose in his desperation. Well, and uh, that's the number one worry right now is how desperate will he get? And uh, reporting over the last couple of days seems to, I don't know if it's leaked out, but this, quote, Tiger team that has been um, assembled within the White House and the National Security Complex uh, about just that, threat assessments and reacting to a WND, a chemical weapon event, uh, or, God forbid, a nuclear uh, bomb, or even the psychological effect of a nuclear bomb, Greg. So talk a little bit about those things. Those are some of your specialties. What would be our responses? How would we respond to something if Putin was to go to that length? Right. Well, you know, it does really, uh, something the president said today, and uh, it's just kind of obvious that it does depend on the exact nature of the event. Uh, but if we're talking about some sort of really radiological uh, attack that can lead to fallout going into Poland, for example, uh, going into other other countries, uh, then I, I, I see that we're engaged in warfare at that point. Um, 
you know, it's one thing to do a cyber attack on somebody's computers. It's another thing to actually have a, a radioactive cloud come into their into their airspace. And so, uh, you know, they're working on these contingencies. It's hard to say exactly what we would do, but I think we would derf. And it wouldn't necessarily be a, a tit for tat exact. Uh, opposite action-reaction situation. Uh, we would have an, a range of options on how to respond. If they set off a radiological bomb, that doesn't mean we're going to set off a radiological bomb. It means we're going to respond in some other way. Uh, it would be a combination of ways, but including kinetic you know, military action, quite simply, uh, going in and um, uh, demonstrating that we're going to defend NATO territory, including the airspace, if something like this happens. Well, President Biden. We're on must, the verge. We're all, we're we're close to something. Uh, I'm afraid, and it, it's hard to see the tipping point. Well, I I agree. Uh, you and I spoke about six weeks ago or two weeks before they actually invaded. That could this turn into another Afghanistan for the Russians? It looks like it actually is. But now he may be so desperate that he actually moves towards WMD. You and I actually talked about that about six weeks ago. Right. Exactly. And uh, you know he's he's preparing his forces. He's got his. People seemingly lined up for this sort of thing. I mean, uh, you know, the situation, according to Russian doctrine, uh, Putin gives the order. It goes to the Ministry of Defense, who goes to the uh, basically their chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, their version of that. Uh, Something interesting is neither of these men have been seen much in the last couple of weeks until today. The Ministry of Defense, the Minister of Defense showed up to apparently brief Putin, and who knows how that's going to go. But we haven't seen much of these people, and they are in the chain of command when it comes to nuclear doctrine, the use of nuclear weapons. Now, again, there are other options besides actually using a weapon, but in in that terms, um, there requires a chain of command for things to happen. And it's possible the chain could break down. Somebody could simply refuse to uh, to obey the order. Uh, you know, we would hope for something like that if it comes down to it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, what's going on in Eastern Europe? What's going on in the Baltics? What's going on in Germany? You're right. It's a psychological effect. Uh, it's turning European foreign policy around as we speak. And I think we're going to see a very different um, Eurasian landmass, you know, situation in, in the next few weeks and months. Well, again, with President Biden being in Brussels this week, uh, obviously he's there to unify NATO and to show a a strong uh, show of hands that that we're united, and that seems to be effective. It seems to be that the Western world is united. Uh, Obviously, we're going to have to watch to see what China does over the next week or 10 days, but talk a little bit about the, the unification. How has this unified NATO, Greg? This has actually emboldened and strengthened NATO in my view. Well, yes. I mean, a common threat like this on such an imminent scale, this is not abstract. This is, as they say, existential. This is on. This is an imminent threat that is uh, perhaps increasing daily. As again, as Putin gets um, gets more desperate, you know, it was Winston Churchill who famously said that the only thing worse than fighting with allies is having to fight without them. Uh, coalition maintenance is very difficult, okay? These are independent nation states with their own national interests that we're, you know, for many years now, we've tried to corral into this military political organization we call NATO. Um, it, we saw NATO drift for a long time after the Cold War. Many people said it should be shut down. What is the purpose of NATO? Well, we're back to square one. The purpose of NATO is to keep the Russians out, keep the Americans in, and have Germany participate in a unified 
Western Europe against Russia. So um, we're kind of back to square one with NATO, but in some ways in a much more dangerous world because now we're looking at a, a world of thousands of, of nuclear weapons and, and such as that. Well, and Donald Trump, you and I have talked about it for a, a number of years. You know, he was right in his criticism of NATO and some of the NATO participants not paying their portion of GDP to the Common Defense Fund. But give me your thoughts on how President Biden has handled the, uh, let, let's call it unification, restrengthening of NATO in general. Well, first of all, uh, you're right. I mean, um, but, but if we put this in historical perspective, you will not find a president who has not complained in their own way, some louder, some more quiet than others about uh NATO's awareness of their security situation. And certainly they're much more now than they were even just a few months ago, much less a few years ago. Uh, so it takes something like this to really turn them around. Now, there is no common defense fund. Each, uh, each nation pays for its own defense. And, uh, that is, it's not a, a collective security organization. It's right. a collective defense organization, which means we come to the defend one another. Um, and in each, country deciding how it's going to come to the aid of another country. And so it's not always troops. It's, all, it's, it's, it's a matter of comparative advantage and what they have. But certainly an outside threat like this, you know, does bring unity. The fact that it's changed Switzerland from a neutral power really to an anti-Russian power, the fact that Sweden and Finland are now closer than ever than wanting to join NATO uh, is just another example of that, not only unifying the existing members of, of NATO, uh, but, but being more attractive because they want a bandwagon again, or they want to balance against Russia. It's a balancing act. So that's the advantage of, of organizations and alliances like NATO is their strength in numbers. And of course, the key to NATO is it's a voluntary organization. These countries want to be a part of it. The old Warsaw Pact that the Soviet Union led was not a volunteer organization. The countries really had no choice. A communist government was put in place, was kept loyal to the Soviet Union, and that was it. They were part of the Warsaw Pact, and they had all these millions of troops on their territory. So there's a fundamental difference here. The NATO alliance, uh, these new countries we've added in the last 20 years, nobody was forced to join. Uh, they joined because they they knew the Russian threat was there. They knew NATO is uh, one link towards democratization, actually. We teach them. We, we uh uh, such matters as civilian control of the military is part of becoming a NATO member on a permanent basis. So, uh, you know, NATO really helped to, in one way, transform much of Eastern Europe. It's one contributing factor. However, those people who say NATO uh, expansion uh, is basically what kind of caused or at least set the conditions for the actions today. Right. Um, that's that's not an invalid you know uh, argument. It just comes down to a matter of balance of how much we should or should not have done. Right. Now let's keep in mind, Putin is not. I mean, we can go back to the 1990s, and I, I mentioned Boris Yeltsin a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there's a new book out on the transition from the Soviet Union to Russia, and in it, there's reports of Yeltsin being very strong on Ukraine. Basically, the same thing, denying Ukrainian identity, saying, you know, that Russia might use force. The problem is, at the time, Russia had no force in the 1990s. Uh, the Red Army was picking potatoes, so it couldn't be done. It's a very different picture now. At the same time, it's still, as to go back to the beginning of this, this particular episode, baffling. 
at just how poorly the conventional forces of Russia are performing. It's nothing like what we expected, to be honest. Maybe they should be picking potatoes instead of picking up a... Maybe so. They've been inept. (laughs) They really have, and and they look uh, out of sorts, mismanaged, whatever you want to say. But Dr. Greg Granger, I learn so much from you every time we have you on. I, I do need to get you to quickly comment... Uh, about the sanctions on Russia, and then also President Biden's comments this week about his warnings to China that they would suffer, quote, economic consequences, depending on how they handle their support of Russia. Uh, well, sure. I mean, on that note, uh, you know, we, we know uh, he says that, you know, he, he said that there will be consequences against China. And of course, China needs the West much more than it needs Russia in yes. some ways in terms of a, a trading partner or anything like that. Uh, but we also can assume that there's some sort of incentives going on as well, that we're trying to be more attracted to China um, to, because we have a general uh, interest in deconfliction with China, trying to lower the temperature. So maybe some more favorable trade terms. I don't, I don't, we don't know specifically, but it's not hard to imagine something like that. Is, is going on so we're, we're you know we're trying to contain that situation as much as possible and uh it's, it's simply hard to predict where china is going to go with this but it has been fairly quiet in the last couple of weeks in terms of uh talk about china's invasion of taiwan i think china's learning a whole lot of lessons from this situation that putin got himself in and so hopefully we have that situation contained Right. And I uh, can, can keep it that way. Well, we've we got to go. But, Greg, you know, we, we talked about before Putin invaded uh, Ukraine that we weren't really sure what his goal was. That you know, We really weren't sure what the plan was. And it seems like some of the, the, the predictions and comments that you and I talked about six or seven weeks ago when he was ma- amassing this army, that we really weren't sure what his goals were. Well, you know, it, it could have been a form of deterrence. It could have been intimidation. He had military exercises. But I think there's little doubt. We look at the, the record. We, we, like, as somebody said at a recent conference I attended, let's just look at the man and what he has told us over the last several years. And indeed, this is fairly predictable. He wants to make, he thinks Ukraine is part of Russia. He wants to retake it. And apparently he's willing to destroy it. Uh, in order to, in his mind, save it. You know, like we used to say about the villages in Vietnam, we destroyed them to save them. Well, same thing here. He's barely willing to destroy many cities and innocent lives in Ukraine and lose thousands of his own troops uh, in this quest. And that is uh, that makes us question what's going to happen next. It's just bizarre. Do- Donald Trump looks at, looks at him and says he believes him over our own intelligence community. President Biden looks in his eyes and says he saw evil. That was several yeah. years ago. So that's the contrast well, between of the course, two. Of course, Madeleine Albright, who just passed away, had a few things to say about that as well. Isn't that interesting to hear? We could do a whole segment on Madeleine Albright and her comments just in the last few months yeah, uh, about true. Vladimir Putin. But that's also an educational experience to listen to people like that uh, and also to listen to people like you. Greg, uh, Dr. Greg Granger from Northwestern State University, it's just such a pleasure to have you on in these crazy times to educate all of us about these goings-ons. Thank you so much for joining us on Billy West Live again, Dr. Greg Granger. Thank you, Billy. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you, Greg.